Support for this episode of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere is made possible by MX Publishing with the largest catalog of new Sherlock Holmes books in the world, new novels, biographies, graphic novels, and short story collections about Sherlock Holmes. Find them online at mxpublishing.com. Also by Dan Andriaco Mysteries, featuring Sebastian McCabe and Jeff Cody. Check out their new second casebook called Murderer's Row. More information at danandriaco.com. And by the Wes Express, the premier publisher of books about Sherlock Holmes and his world. Find them online at wesexpress.com. I hear of Sherlock Everywhere, episode 205, Sherlock Holmes, Consulting Detective. I hear of Sherlock Everywhere, since you became a chronicler. In a world where it's always 1895, comes I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, a podcast for devotees of Mr. Sherlock Holmes, the world's first unofficial consulting detective. I've heard of you before. You're Holmes the meddler, Holmes the busybody, Holmes the Scotland Yard jack in office. <laughs> the game's afoot as we discuss goings-on in the world of Sherlock Holmes enthusiasts, the bigger street irregulars, and popular culture related to the great detective. As we go to press, sensational developments have been reported. So join your hosts, Scott Monty and Burke Walder, as they talk about what's new in the world of Sherlock Holmes. You couldn't have come at a better time! Well, hello and welcome to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast for Sherlock Holmes devotees where it's always 1895. I'm Scott Monty. I'm Bert Wolder. And we are here not to play games with you, but, well, to talk about playing games with you or with anyone who will participate. Bert, are you a, are you a gamesman? Yes, I love, I love playing games. Hmm. I felt, you know, we, in our conversation with Dave Neal, you know, we had such an interesting discussion about play. I, I feel that I'm a, I'm a very playful person, but who knows what other people. Think. <laughs> well, I think it comes through here on the show. You're, you, you, you don't mince words. You don't, well, you do play games, but <laughs> not in that sense. Um, you're a I don't fun. Mince, I don't mince words. You but don't tend to chop them up pretty there, funny. There you go. <laughs> you know, what am I? Chopped words? Um, <laughs> before we get into the, uh, the, the meat of the subject today. And before we get into the housekeeping that you're so accustomed to hearing at the top of the show here, we did want to, uh, provide a little announcement, a little, um, a, a, a little change that's happening to, uh, our Patreon community. Uh, there are a number of you who support I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere and Trifles, our other show, on Patreon and also on PayPal. And these are two disparate ways of supporting us and don't necessarily uh, provide the same ability for us on the administrative end to provide you with the all of the benefits that we want. And we've had a number of, of things in terms of, you know, when you, when you support us on Patreon, not only does it make transcripts possible, and we're in the process of going through our back transcripts here, um, but it also gives you the opportunity to, um, on, on a regular basis, support us and get rewards, things like stickers and mugs and coasters and whatnot. Uh, but we thought it might be time to change that up a little bit. 
to change the structure, to change the cadence. And we're going to have an announcement uh, on Patreon in January when we will be changing it from a per episode payment to a per month basis, which is the way we do it on trifles as well. And we're going to open up an online community for all of our supporters so we can communicate with you directly and provide you inside information, background, um, you know, give you the, uh, the, the, the coveted outtakes episode that we produce every year, uh, which will be steeped in hilarity, no doubt, as well as errors. And we will uh, use those online communities as a way to kind of provide additional value to you. So we'll be putting together new tiers of membership. Uh, we'll be making it, I, I would hope, a little more affordable, a little more interesting for people, and uh, perhaps even changing our uh, tchotchke model uh, where we uh, give you access to the store and give you discounts there rather than simply just throwing stuff at you like, tote bags and mugs and whatnot. So if you have any feedback on that, if you have any interest, if you have any input that you'd like to give us, please email us at comment at IHearOfSherlock.com. It should be a pretty exciting time in 2021. What do you think, Bert? I I think so. And, you know, we haven't talked about some of the interesting new premiums and gifts that we've been uh, exploring, and I am particularly pleased on the first run of the custom Stradivariuses that we've gotten in from Italy. Uh, I think people are really going to love them. No doubt. No doubt. And, uh, you know, if we could only find one for 55 shillings again, it would actually uh, significantly improve our profit margins, <laughs> which are always threadbare. Well, if you would like to get in touch with us for any reason, not only uh, to talk about our uh, supporter community, but, uh, you know, just to give us feedback or uh, give us show ideas or whatever is on your mind, we would love to hear from you. You can, again, can reach us through email at comment at IHearOfSherlock.com. You can find the show notes for this particular episode at iHose.co slash iHose205. And you can, of course, find us on Instagram, on YouTube, on Twitter, and on Facebook as I Hear of Sherlock. We look forward to your feedback. And it's also worth noting that over on Trifles, if you've been following there, we've eclipsed ourselves. That's right. We we now have more Trifles episodes that have been produced than we do I Hoes or I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere episodes. It's a remarkable thing. And now, uh, collectively, we are at over 400. 110 episodes that we have produced of Sherlockian podcasts. Amazing. Amazing. And somewhere we, we will eventually get transcripts of all of them. We will print them all out, collate them. And I've set aside a table in part of my house with a three ring punch so that we can begin to put them in binders. In the case of trifles on a weekly basis, that's 52 a year. And then of course I hose, which should be 24 annually since 2007, so that's 240, roughly. And I'm really looking forward to that. And once we've done all that printing, that collating, that organizing, um, I'm going to be the first one in line at the recycling center <laughs> to make what I think is oh, going so to that's... be the most memorable contribution they will have received. <laughs> so that's where your wife is sending you. <laughs> that's where she's throwing you out to. 
No, no, that's where she always carries me out every other Monday. Yeah. <laughs> I keep coming back. Oh, that's great. Arthur Conan Doyle wrote 22 novels. The one he thought his best is an adventure story of knights and chivalry. 20-year-old Alan Edrickson travels the world encountering bullies, con artists, thieves, a damsel in distress, and two men who become his closest friends. Together they join the White Company, archers and fighters led by the gallant Sir Nigel Loring. Will our hero win the hand of Loring's romantic daughter Maud? Will the chivalrous Prince Edward restore Peter of Castile to his Spanish throne? Published in 1891 and never out of print, The White Company is a tale of pageantry and piracy, heraldry and hope, published now in an exclusive, annotated edition with the original N.C. Wyeth illustrations in blazing color. Don't you owe it to yourself to read Conan Doyle's favorite book? Get The Annotated White Company at wessexpress.com. Dave Neal is the designer of Sherlock Holmes' consulting detective, the Baker Street Irregulars, uh, and the Sherlock Holmes scenario from Unlock, Heroic Adventures, and Five Minute Chase from Board and Dice. He also has six more narrative mystery-solving games scheduled for release in 2021. And surprisingly, there are some that don't even include Sherlock Holmes. Outside of game design... Dave is a researcher and consultant in the psychology of play and learning, having earned his Ph.D. from Cambridge University in 2017. He's held academic posts in the U.K. and U.S.A. and given research advice and briefings to the Lego Foundation, the U.K. Houses of Parliament, and the U.S. Military. He's an associate fellow of the Higher Education Academy and an affiliate of the Center for Research on Play in Education, Development, and Learning at the University of Cambridge, where he teaches the psychology of play. Dave Neal, welcome to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. Hello. Well, you are coming to us today from what, Cambridge, England. Is that right? Yep. Cambridge, England. Yep. Well, you you must be steeped in the lore of Sherlock Holmes. When when was the first time you remember um, encountering Sherlock Holmes uh, as a child? Um, I can still sort of re I remember my first Sherlock Holmes book, hardcover book. I think I got it as a present often. My aunt. Um, and I can still visualize the cover, this green cover, and the the picture on the front. Um, I might might still even have it somewhere, and. I can't remember exactly what age I was, but I was pretty young. Don't I think I was probably younger than ten, and I quite quickly became sort of enthralled by um, Sherlock Holmes, and uh, and then within um, a few years of that point, I, I remember starting to invent my own kind of Sherlock Holmes stories and writing. Sherlock Holmes plays which I put on for my class at school with my friends acting in them um I don't think they would have held up very well to um be very uh accurate in sort of canon terms but um yeah it was a it was a sort of a measure of my uh 
immediate sort of infatuation with Sherlock Holmes that I that I started doing that. Well, that that's impressive. I mean, usually we hear from uh, our interview subjects that you know they encountered Sherlock Holmes as children, uh, sometimes through the books, sometimes through films, and television, etc. Um, but to actually go the extra step of writing your own—that's uh, that's fairly rare. Did were, were there were there like-minded literary folks in your family when you were growing up? Um, well, my my parents have always, I guess, been very into sort of creative things and into stories, um, into reading. Um, my dad uh, would tell us, um, read us stories um, at bedtime, and would also sometimes just make up stories for us um, as he sort of as he went along. I think um, at night time sometimes. So I guess sort of I was inspired by that, and I used to write a lot of stories and come up with sort of fictional worlds and things um, as a child a lot of the time. So so yeah. So once I once I discovered Sherlock Holmes, that's kind of the direction I. I was already sort of primed to go in was to uh, let my imagination run wild with this new idea I discovered. That's fantastic. Well, that's fascinating. And of course, of course, what you're doing now uh, was really just a part of what you do professionally. But in terms of the game, you know, it, it really is a story. But how did you how what was the path for you to your academic pursuits? Because um you know, you mentioned that you had created Sherlock Holmes plays when you were in school and your mates would join in. And obviously, um, play, creativity, storytelling, working mm -hmm. with, with other kids, you know, is clearly sort of central to, um, uh, it seems like that's central to your interests and passions. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think I, I spent a lot of, a long time, um, was kind of unsure where I where I fit in the world in a way and what my direction was, um, but there were various things which have always fascinated me, which include sort of storytelling and creativity and play, um, and then um, the, the human mind basically. So I I at one point decided, well, I'm really interested in sort of the human mind and psychology and that, so I'll I'll start going down that route and see where that takes me. Um, and eventually that took me to a PhD in psychology, which ended up being about early, early psychological development and kind of the role of play in early development in childhood. And, um, from there, I, I was writing the PhD, in fact, at the same time as I was writing the game that you have now got. Um, uh, so which, which ended up being longer than my PhD. So that was interesting <laughs> comparison. Um, I was doing the two things at the same time. I was writing my psychology PhD, um, and writing that game. And, and then since then I have worked, I worked in a lab in the US that's focused on research into play. Um, and I've done some, uh, stuff about games and some talks about play in the psychology of play in adulthood. And so the two kind of things, have kind of then merged in terms of my storytelling and um, sort of gaming and play side and my research side have to some extent now become um, connected quite strongly. Hmm. Uh, so this kind of worked out. Um, it was more, more accident than anything else, I think. That yeah. has. Huh. That's fascinating. Well, we, we want to talk to you, obviously, mostly about the game. But, but before we do that, I'm just really curious – We've had 
a couple of guests on over the years where we've talked about psychology. For example, Maria Konnikova, who wrote a book, you know, basically about how to how to think like Sherlock Holmes. Yes, yeah. She is, um, you know, another psychology PhD who applied a lot of her early learning about William James and the mm-hmm. birth of psychology to the structure of the book. I'm just curious, you must have applied some of the principles you've been researching professionally around play and psychology into, into the game. I mean, is there any way that, you know, at a high level for, for ignorant, for lay mm-hmm. readers like us, you know, you could uh, talk about some of those? Um, well, I, there were some things I noticed um, that were kind of interesting, interesting designing the game as, a, as someone who was a psychologist as well, um, that were things like, um, uh, for example, I, I realized that there's this well-known concept of flow in psychology of getting into a flow state where you, um, you almost don't notice time passing because you're so engaged in activity and it's, um, considered a, a important state for kind of well-being and things. And I realized that, um, there's this sort of idea in, in gaming, um, terminology about the magic circle where you have, a group who all become sort of engrossed and engaged in one thing and, and focused on that. And then time kind of passes without them realizing. And it's sort of a flow state, a collective flow state. It's almost like games are, and game design is about creating something that gives a group of people a collective flow state where they're all engaged in this immersive world. Um, and time sort of just goes by without them realizing. So there are certain parallels like that. And then there's some stuff I think I use to do with, um, uh, there's definitely relations between stuff I, I've looked at in psychology and psychology and learning about um, about difficulty and providing a level of challenge which can kind of push people beyond what they normally can do. Getting the balance right of difficulty is a interesting challenge as a game designer, and um, I definitely has some uh, uh, links to some of the psychology stuff I have done. I mean, the Sherlock Holmes game that you've got is is actually particularly difficult, but it's kind of almost made to be like that to um sort of uh, live up to uh uh, greatest detective of all time um you know the cases need to be difficult to live up to him really um there was one other thing i was going to say related to that uh idea oh it was um one thing which i think is quite very interesting as well from a sort of detective uh point of view is that i think designing these cases made me realize and when I was testing them is um, one thing that really stood out to me was how much crime solving and detection work probably in the real world, I imagine is about paying attention. And I'd never really thought about that before, but it was something that stood out to me when I was watching groups play this game and that sometimes um, they would miss something, even, even something that was quite obvious. I would sometimes be like, okay, I've got to make this thing obvious in this, in this clue because it's really important and it'd be written there right front and center and somehow they would still miss it. Um, and I realized that of course the game is giving the players quite a lot of information and just the ability to stay focused, pick through that information, pick out the important details, um, is like 90% of solving something, I think. Hmm. And I'd not really thought about it in that way before. I think that's a great observation. And uh, Dave, with the, 
recent attention that's, uh, you know, pun intended, that's been given to um, situations like uh, attention deficit disorder. Um, and and mm-hmm. in your background in studying, um, you know, childhood learning and development, do you see a role for uh, games and gaming with respect to something like ADHD? Um, I know there are. I haven't done a lot looking at things like ADHD in relation to to um, playing gaming, but I I do know that there are there is research on that um area and uh, a lot of research about play is sort of looking at well what what can it do that can sort of address some of the gaps in our current educational system are there ways that it can engage children who um don't engage so well with our traditional educational system and give them opportunities for learning that they wouldn't otherwise have so um yeah so that that is a big part of play i think because play is just um, almost universally engaging and it therefore definitely represents an educational opportunity in, in certain ways. Yeah. Well, you know, there's there, there are so many games out there available for a wide variety of ages. In, in your research and as you've, you've studied, um, you know, kind of human psychology uh, across a variety of countries – what commonalities do you see across the human race and even across ages? You know, where does, I guess what I'm asking is where does the, uh, the psychology behind uh, the enjoyment of a game perhaps change from a child's perspective to an adult's perspective? And do we, do we approach playing games from, uh, from different approaches, different uh, perspectives uh, as a child versus as an adult? Um, yes, I mean, that's a big, a big question. And, uh, but I think the, uh, sort of as a brief kind of answer, I think, yes, we do approach it differently. Um, I have, I, I think more generally, I, um, play compared, play as a child comp- compared to play as an adult, which is something I've talked about before, um, in sort of public talks and things is, is that play as a, as a child can be a very sort of open and free form and flowing kind of thing. Um, children will kind of dip in and out of play all the time. You know, they, you're sitting down for dinner in a restaurant, um, when we're allowed to do that kind of thing. Uh, you're sitting down for dinner in a restaurant and there's, um, like they might just suddenly become a, a pirate for a bit, you know, or something like that. Um, whereas if an adult did that, it would kind of be a bit, probably seen as a little bit strange. Um, <laughs> So adults kind of have this more, they still play, but they do it in a much more circumscribed way. They do it in particular places, particular times, um, and in more elaborate ways often. You know, you get like, um, you've got the rise of escape rooms that have become incredibly popular, which are basically a way for adults to play. Interactive theatre has become more and more popular, very kind of playful way of of doing theatre. So, um, and then you have like the live action role playing and these kind of events that go on where people dress up and do, um, act out stories and things. So this is much more elaborate, potentially more complex. Um, but it's very sort of like discreet. Like this is, this is us playing when you're an adult, whereas a child kind of dips in and out all the time. And so I think for a child of games as well can almost be like that. They're just part of. Flow of things sometimes games almost blur into the uh, the rest of their life a bit. Whereas for an adult, they're a bit more of a separate thing, and adults often have to 
sort of consciously put a time time aside if they want to play a game, you know, to fit it in their life. And they're like, okay, this is the time we're going to do this. And um, there's a bit more structure around how they fit play in, I think. That's ironic that we have to we have to take play more seriously as we grow up. Yes, in a way, yeah. That's kind of that that is part of it. I mean I don't know how I mean we have to it's almost like you have to plan for play, basically because you have to plan a lot of your life and there isn't really around that, I suppose, once you get to an adult to be an adult. Um but but I mean there are ways in which adults still are sort of playful. That's another way that uh, play uh, comes comes out in adults that's sort of um, different from in children. You do get this spontaneous play in adults, but it's more um, it's more like you know, kind of a bit of joking, um, uh, like um, uh, sort of quick, sort of witty asides and um, laughing with friends and stuff. You get this kind of playful banter, that kind of thing coming out. Um, so adults do that. They slip into that kind of sort of playful thing very easily um, and often don't really see that as play, but it, but it is really. There are so many titles to choose from at MX Publishing that it's almost hard to cover all of them here. Uh, you know we've covered the MX book of new Sherlock Holmes stories quite frequently, but there are other smaller titles we think are just as worthwhile. One of those is Mrs. Hudson Goes to Ireland by Susan Knight. This was just published, and Susan actually did a book launch live from Dublin recently. You can find the link to the event on the mxpublishing.com site. There is a YouTube video there uh, where the launch was done virtually. And if you're thinking about Mrs. Hudson Goes to Ireland, it's an extraordinarily well-researched book. You've got uh, an engaging mystery, and uh, there's there's an entertaining introduction to life in Victorian Ireland. Here, Holmes is believed to be dead somewhere at the bottom of Reichenbach Fall, so Mrs. Hudson has an opportunity to go gallivanting. She accompanies her friend and neighbor Kitty Melrose to Ireland and uh, there to rescue Kitty's godchild, Lily, from a suspected forced marriage. The two women uh, are then found in a situation uh, where it's everything they feared it might be, and in exchange for a parcel of land, Lily is going to be married against her will to a brutish neighbor. And it's only when uh, that brutish neighbor is found stabbed to death on his wedding night with Lily standing over him that Mrs. Hudson is in the middle of all of it. But she's certain of Lily's innocence. If that sounds something like you'd enjoy, then you need to get over to mxpublishing.com and check out Mrs. Hudson Goes to Ireland by Susan Knight today. It's there, along with many other collections, just in time for the holidays. Go to mxpublishing.com and pick your favorite pastiche and more. Well, let's let's talk a little bit. Well, let's not talk a little bit. Let's talk a lot about Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective. Um, For our listeners who may never have... Oh, I guess I should point out, this is the fourth in a series, I think it's the fourth, yep. in a series of games that began in 2017, Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective. And there have been, um, you know, three other, I think, editions. One is Thames Murders and Carlton House. And this is Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective, The Baker Street Irregulars, authored by Dave Neal. Um, you know, at a high level, it, just for our readers who 
you know, may not be familiar with any of this. Could you talk yeah. a little, just a second about detective games, about that category and about board games and help them locate where this sort of fits in? Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, one thing is this, uh, I think the version you mentioned, the 2017, 20, uh, that's the most recent publication, but the game, the original Sherlock Holmes and Sun detective game what came out in 1980, I think it's 81, maybe 82. Um, and it was sort of in board game terms very much ahead of its time. Um, it, I think, was, I mean, it was soon after the sort of, there was the whole role-playing Dungeons and Dragons thing happened in the 1970s, which put a focus on sort of games telling stories and things. And so that might have partly inspired it. But it was very unusual at that time. And it came out and what, and the, the basic principle of the game is that it's kind of like a, a Sherlock Holmes story, but divided into pieces. And so you begin by reading the introduction out loud and you take some notes and you have a map of Victorian London and you have a directory with all names and addresses in and you're deciding where you think you should go to find a clue to help you solve the mystery you've just been presented with. You decide where you're going, return to the entry in the book for that place and read what you find there, take more notes and then repeat, and you keep doing this until you think you know what the solution to the mystery is, and then you turn to some questions like, who murdered this person? Why were they wearing long socks? Why this? All these <laughs> strange questions and things. You try and answer them, and then you read the actual solution and see how well you did and get a score. Um, so it was very original at that time, and there was nothing really else like it, and then it disappeared and went out of print a while after that. It was successful, I think, at the time, but it went out of print a while after and then a publisher republished it um, in a version, I think, in about 2012. But then that, and then then the most recent version of that original set came out in 2017. But basically, after that came out in 2012, it was very successful, I think. And that has sparked a big increase in this whole idea of detective games that do this kind of thing, where you are essentially engaging in interactive narrative, solving a case. And there are now quite a range out there that do it in all different kinds of ways. And and when did you first get connected to it? Were you did you get connected to the series, you know, early on or what when did you first encounter Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective? Um well, it was uh it would have been about was it 2011 or 2012 um around that kind of time I found it actually um in the in a it was in a cupboard or in the attic at my dad's house um it was like this old battered copy from the 1980s which we had evidently found at some like car boot sale type thing where they've been selling it cheap some bit and and it and we evidently tried to play it when i was like young um but you could tell that we'd started trying to play it and then realized it was too difficult for uh, i don't know how old i was at that point an eight-year-old or whatever, and then it had been abandoned partway through. We'd written down some notes, but not got very far. Um, but when I discovered it then and looked at it, I was like, wow, this looks pretty amazing. What, what is this game? Um, and so looked at it, and we ended up playing it and played the cases in that original set, and I really liked it. And then after that, I just I was just fascinated by that idea, and I just a bit like coming up with the Sherlock Holmes plays when I was at school. Um, I just thought of some cases myself, uh, some ideas for some mysteries myself. And so I just wrote one out 
um, and then kind of gave it to friends to play and see how they did. And at that point, it was just out of curiosity and for, for my own enjoyment. Um, but then I saw that a publisher was republishing the game and I sent them an email and said, I've written this case. Uh, if you've thought about doing some new stuff, here it is. Um, and I continued and wrote another one or two or a few more. I began to develop a, a series of cases. Um, and eventually it took a long time, but quite a long time after that, uh, it was over a year, I think I got an email back from the publisher and it said, we've, we've tried your cases. Can you do a whole box of 10 for us? Um, <laughs> so that was my, um, entry into, um, into game design actually as a whole. Um, and my, uh, the, and, and since then, oh, are you still there? I'm oh, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, my, my Mac just, uh, I thought it had gone to sleep or was shutting down. It's okay. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. So that was my kind of entry into board games in general. And, um, I was very lucky because the publisher is a big publisher. So I was kind of getting in at a high level. Um, and they were very keen on the cases I had written. They were very keen on, I made some changes to the rules and things. Um, um, which I can tell you more about in a bit and things, but I made some changes and yeah, they were really happy with it. And it kind of went on from there and a long process and a long time coming out because you know, that was seven or eight years ago. So, uh, and it's only just come out this year, of course. So it has been a long process, but it's been, um, a amazing process for me, actually. Well, it's a, it's a great introduction to detective games. And I know really very little about detective games, although I have, a box from a game from the 19, you know, that I played when I was very young called that I thought was Sherlock Holmes consulting detective, but it, it's not, I don't think, but it's, it was more of a, but it also was oriented around cases. But Is it so the two, two, one B one? Yes. The one where you roll the dice. Yeah. And you yes, go around one, and one, you get yes. little cards with some clues. Yeah. 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 I, yeah. I've, yes. Yeah. So I've got that, but this is very different. So, you know, as, as, as you say, uh, what's in the box? It's a map of London with regions and locations. One of the lovely things is that everything is coded so that by knowing the region and the building you want to visit, you can travel through the game. So that's a lovely immersive element. Mm-hmm. And as you say, there are 10 complete cases uh, to play. And we'll probably ask you in a second, you know, maybe to describe what some of those are about. There's Mm -hmm. a list of informants who can provide information. You have a London directory allowing you to find other people and businesses. And then, and then very creatively, there's a morning times. Each case has a, the morning edition of the times for you to look Mm -hmm. at where you can find some interesting information. How many, um, how many people is, is, uh, is the game? What's the minimum and maximum number of people who can play? Uh, well, it's kind of one is the minimum people can play it on their own. It's pretty hard on your own. I think, um, it's a game where it's very useful, very useful to have somebody else to sort of bounce ideas off. And, um, when I played the original game myself and in playtesting, there's been many, many times where one player has kind of fixated on a particular solution and gone, it's probably this has got to be this. And then the, someone else has pointed out a a flaw in that idea and if they've been playing on their own they'd have just you know gone down that that um dead end avenue that wild goose chase or whatever so it can be played alone um it's harder i think uh and then the limit um i mean i think the publishers describe it as one to maybe one to eight even or but i mean it gets 
there's no there's no hard limit in theory it could be almost any number of people but it's kind of like um how many people can sort of comfortably have a conversation and meaningfully contribute to the discussion about what you should do next and um what you think the solution is and so it's quite group dependent i think um i think you could easily have a situation where someone who didn't really you could end up with somebody who wasn't really into it or didn't really like that kind of game or wasn't very confident and sort of wasn't really doing much and was just sitting there um if you have two or three people that might be the kind of sweet spot you've got some discussion people aren't going to be left out but i do know some people who've played in groups of uh seven or eight and they they find it fine so it does depend i think on who the people are is there is there sort of an average um, amount of time, and I mean, you mentioned earlier you were watching groups play the game, so clearly mm-hmm. you did some research along the way. Is there sort of an average time that you've observed that people tend to play? How long the game is? Um, well, that varies a lot. I think, I mean, the absolute minimum before people feel, I mean, well, one thing to say about it, which the listeners might not know, is that there isn't a set endpoint. Well, in m- most cases, there isn't a set end point. You play until you feel you know enough and might be able to solve the case and can answer the questions. So, so in theory, you could play for like 10 minutes and then decide to stop and go to the question. You'll probably score very badly, but mm-hmm. in theory, you could do that. So, um, but in reality, when you play, people tend not to feel they have almost any idea at all of what the, the might be going on until they've probably played for at least about 90 minutes. And then um, after that, I mean, I played some of the original cases um, and spent like four hours on them. Um, but um, I have I have seen a comment from one group who um, played the last case in the box that you've got there and spent 32 hours <laughs> playing it over a weekend. Um <laughs> which which is really quite going to a whole other level but yeah that <laughs> so it's kind of like 90 minutes plus and you kind of take as long as you feel you want to to um to get as much information as you feel you need uh and then you stop when you feel ready and you want to answer the questions yeah. with with the um the unfortunate pandemic that we have now have you observed anybody playing this over zoom with other people um, people, I know people are playing it over Zoom. Um, the publisher actually on their website has materials for remote play that you can download, um, where you can download, I think it's the newspapers and the directory maybe so that every, everybody can have those, um, and can print them out in their house. And then you can all, one player has the main box and the books and reads those things, but everyone can look at the other materials. Um, so it's, it's quite popular, I think, to play over Zoom because it's relatively easy to do so. And I actually, at the start of the pandemic, I did um, uh, play well a case from one of the original, one of the um, earlier cases, but I didn't write. I played um, one of those over Zoom, and it does work pretty well. Can can you describe some of the cases at sort of a high level for our listeners, so they get a sense of what the stories are all about? Um, yeah, so. There, in this set, there are, um, this set's called the Baker Street Irregulars. And the reason it's called the Baker Street Irregulars is because, um, in the original game, it tells you you are the Baker Street Irregulars. Um, but it doesn't really, um, apart from mentioning Wiggins sometimes and having him, uh, feature as a character, there wasn't much else about them or, 
um, what they were kind of, uh, who they were and stuff. And I thought it would be interesting to kind of put the focus more on them and who they were and um, maybe make you feel more a part of that group than you did in the original game. So I decided to make that the focus of this. And as part of that, I also then decided I would make this chronologically the earliest. So the cases in this, out of all the different sets of this game, this starts the earliest in um, 1885, which is then the first case the Baker Street Irregulars have ever um, directly worked on for Holmes. Um, and then the publisher decided, based on all that as well, that they wanted to try and get this set done well for kind of new players, people who'd never played before, because it's chronologically the first one. And so there were some changes in this one, like the sheet that shows all the informants you can visit for information that has pictures of them. That's new. There used to just be a list and um, things like that. So this has had some changes to make it a bit smoother for, for new players. Um, so you have that first case they work on, which is a kidnapping, um, uh, but a kind of slightly odd kidnapping uh, where the victim was released um just after one night and um you have to figure out why why that happened um the case there's a case following that which is um uh, listeners may may recognize parallels to a certain Sherlock Holmes story um where there is a severed finger um that is discovered and the basic mystery is why is the severed finger even there it's found in a box in the Thames um, by a mudlark, one of the Baker Street regulars called Tinker, who's a mudlark who looks for stuff in the river mud, and he finds this finger, and um, and so they just the, the irregulars just say, well, and it's got a tattoo, a, a tattoo on the side, and um, the irregulars decide to try and figure out why this severed finger ended up in a box in the Thames. Um, then there's a case that is about a missing file that Mycroft gets stolen from Mycroft. Um, and you have to kind of track it down. It's been stolen by a, a international spy. That case is a bit different um, than than the two before it. And then the fourth case is very much focused on Wiggins, um, and uh, uh, that is also quite different in its tone, I guess. I mean, number four is very. It's a different kind of story in a way. Um, I won't say too much to not to spoil it, but um, it's also a bit more focused on kind of, uh, it's a bit more emotional, I think. I did have one person write to me saying she found it incredibly emotional at the end um, and was one of her most emotional experiences playing a board game. So that was that was quite meaningful to me because I was kind of hoping I wanted to kind of create an emotional experience in that particular case. So the first, they're the first four, and they're all quite different. Number three and number four, are both very different from each other, in fact, both very different experiences. Um, so they cover a range of stuff. And then the next set of cases after that, the number five to 10, um, then cover a whole other range of things of like heists, um, and, um, strange codes on newspapers, um, disappearances. And, and with those ones, there is also some connecting thread when you get to the end of them all in case 10 you will realize there are some certain things that link stuff together. And the final case is like a big finale uh, with a lot of stuff going on that gives you a sort of overall resolution to the whole set, basically. So it's a wonderful architecture. You know, we should, we should tell our listeners that, um, you know, you, you as the player decide where to go and how long you, you want to play. And if you get stuck at any point, 
there's some very clever things. You can visit 221B and consult Sherlock mm-hmm. Holmes. Get a hint. There's a there's a point score at the end, and Holmes always scores a hundred and explains the solution. But um, it's possible to do better than Holmes. And and unfortunately, if you're not as acute as Sherlock, who is, if you follow more leads than Sherlock Holmes to get to the solution, you lose points. But it's the role of Sherlock Holmes in in uh, the game structure is really uh, nicely done. I. Think. Yeah, that's been helped a lot by, um, I mentioned earlier, some changes I'd made. One of the changes compared to the, the original version of the game that I added was this um, tracking system where you circle letters. So you will sometimes go somewhere and when you've gone to a certain place, it will say circle the letter A and you have a sheet which has the alphabet written on it for that case. So it will say case one, the Curzon Street kidnapping, and it will have the alphabet written out. And so you've gone somewhere, it says circle the letter A, you circle it. And then when you go somewhere else in that case, it might say, is A circled? If it isn't, you don't learn anything here or whatever. If it is, read on. And so basically, if you learn one piece of information somewhere, it might change what you learn somewhere else. So, for example, you might go somewhere and be told that um, someone called Colonel Smethering is is really important in this case. And so when you go to a different place, it will say, do you have A circled? Yes, you do. So then it will say, we ask about Colonel Smethering. Obviously, if you don't have a circle, you don't ask about him because you don't know about him. Um, and that was partly to solve a problem in the original, which was that sometimes um, because the original didn't have that, it, it would assume you had been to certain places. And so, but you wouldn't always have. Sometimes you'd, you'd leapt ahead to doing something for whatever reason and you'd gone somewhere. The game wasn't expecting you to go so quickly. And so you would suddenly be asking about a character and you'd, you'd be like, Who, who's that? Why are we asking about this person we've never heard of before? Um, so this circled letter system where the game it sort of gives the game a, a memory, it knows where you've been in a way, um, solved that problem and also allowed me to make Sherlock Holmes um, kind of more useful in the hints he can give. Because when you go to Sherlock Holmes, uh, the game knows how far along you are. So um, by the circled letters you have. So if you have a lot of the circled letters, certain ones, then it will know you're sort of, you, you, that you know a huge amount and it will tell you, uh, a clue that will help you towards the end. Whereas if you have almost nothing circled, it might know that you know very little and it will give you an initial clue to help you at the beginning. So that was um, definitely a useful way of, of giving players more hints. He's an author. He's a blogger. He is a fancier of bow ties. That's right. You're talking about our friend Dan Andriaco, the creator of the Sebastian McCabe and Jeff Cody Mysteries. Why, if you haven't been to danandriaco.com, you're missing out. Uh, There are reviews of publications from all over the Sherlockian world, as well as uh, commentary on, oh, games and uh, puzzles and lots of different things. And, of course, access to Dan's oeuvre of Sherlockian work, including Murderer's Row. There's no holiday from homicide for... Sebastian McCabe and his long-suffering brother-in-law, Jeff Cody. And Murderer's Row is their second casebook of shorter stories, and it's uh, it's got three adventures that are connected with what otherwise would have been happy occasions. Well, the happy occasion of the holidays is coming up, so if you go to danandriaco.com, you can choose what you'd like to get 
from Dan in time for the holidays. Perhaps for those Sherlockians you know that like related tales. There's Murderer's Row, Too Many Clues, Queen City Corpse, Aaron Go Bloody, uh, The 1895 Murder, No Police Like Holmes, that's the book that started it all, uh, and many more. Just go to danandreaco.com and tell them iHose sent you. When you're designing a game, and, and, and you've, you've worked on this for Sherlock Holmes, I know we want to talk about what you've got in the future in just a moment, but when you're designing a game, what, what was different for you about designing a game around Sherlock Holmes versus other games uh, that, that you've, you've created? Um, well, if the, this, this game you've got now was my, my first real game i mean i had i did design games and again like like that play as a child i designed games and i always played games um with my brother we do a lot of play a lot of games and invent games and things um but in terms of like actual designing games as as work this was my entry point um so and in a sense it's become um uh my almost it's almost normal it's almost my my base uh line is is sherlock holmes uh in a game so it's it's kind of the opposite of the way you phrased it in a way um because uh yeah in terms of other things i've got coming up there are some other things that also involve sherlock holmes and that's kind of become my my thing to some extent um so so i guess my uh it almost took me a bit of time i guess to to find a a different way of doing narrative games, I suppose, because this is a this is a, a very in-depth narrative game. You experience a very detailed, intricate story and a plot, and you interact with it. And um, I thought that was great, and I could kind of instinctively feel that there was more more in that principle than than obviously just Sherlock Holmes related things, and more than just detective things. Probably, you know, there are you can tell other kinds of stories and i suppose i had to sort of feel my way into a broader spectrum of like okay how can how can i create storytelling games um in different ways that do different things about different subjects that aren't always about solving crimes and this kind of thing um uh, so i had to sort of leave Sherlock Holmes behind rather than rather than find find him um because him it, it's always going to be in, in my for me like Sherlock Holmes and board games uh, design are always going to be kind of inextricably linked, I think. Yeah, makes sense. It makes sense. So tell us a little bit about what you've, what, what else you're working on, the other games that are uh, in the queue for 2021. Um, yeah, well, I, there's a, a game called Unlock, which is an escape room card game. So it's like an escape room you do at home where it's a deck of cards and you also use an app on your phone, which you can enter some codes and things into the app. And then the app will say, tell you to draw new cards and the cards kind of show rooms and places. And, and so it's a bit like an escape room type experience where you're solving puzzles and things, um, but you do it in your own home. And I've actually already got, um, it's a whole series of games and I've designed one scenario um, for the series already, which came out, um, actually came out in 2018 um uh which was also Sherlock Holmes themed, which is called Sherlock Holmes The Scarlet Thread of Murder, but it's in a box called Unlock Heroic Adventures is the actual name of the box. It contains three different scenarios and mine is one of them. So I've done another Sherlock Holmes themed one of these 
scenarios, escape room scenarios, which is coming out in um, probably around summer summer 2021. Um, uh, and then in addition to that, I've got a Sherlock Holmes game, which is in a sense, I mean, the original idea was to make something like the game you've got, but more pitched for children and families because um, like uh, sort of like maybe, I don't know, eight to 10 year olds, that kind of age and, and up maybe um, something that would be enjoyable for adults and parents, but also very engaging for kids. So there is that game, which will be coming out, I think um, probably towards the end of next year, maybe September next year, which is, um, I think I'm allowed to say, I did ask the publisher a while ago and they did say I could discuss this game, I think. So it's called Toby and the Animals of Baker Street. So that um, is essentially this type of experience, but made kind of simpler and written for children. And with that, I've worked uh, with my friend Clementine Beauvais, who is a children's author, um, and we've written that together. So that's that's quite an exciting one too. Um, and then there are a few others, but yeah, I don't know if you want to hear about all of them, but there's, I've got various narrative games coming out next year, um, some that don't involve Sherlock Holmes. Oh, well, that's exciting. Um, and, you know, it strikes me as, as we were talking uh, earlier in the interview about the difference between the way children approach play and the way adults approach it, that there's this, this free-form versus structured type of play. And as you've just been describing the types of games that you're involved with, uh, it, it sounds like you too have uh, things that have to do with structure. You know, the Sherlock Holmes consulting game, that's a, you know, kind of a known uh, pattern, a known process uh, that people go through with mm -hmm. these games. And and then there are other games that you're coming up with uh, kind of freeform out of your own head. Mm -hmm. uh, how, yeah. how do you balance that? You know, like like you have to you have to color within the lines within a certain uh, group <laughs> and then you, you, you have the ability to just create your own, which is there a preference that you have and how do you approach that? Um, yeah, they're, they're sort of quite different. I mean, I guess one thing about doing the consultant detective and with um yeah with the unlock escape room games again that was sort of like you say coloring in the lines in a way i was working with the the sort of game system that had already been designed um so yeah in a sense that's kind of quite liberating because it's already there and you kind of know you've got something that works and it's more like okay what can i do with this what stories can i tell with this that are really interesting and new um and then also are the things I can do that are different, like with the uh, Sherlock Holmes consultant detective Baker Street Irregulars with the, the circling of the letters so the game knows what you've done and, and what you know. Um, so you have this kind of like, uh, uh, it, yeah, in a way it's kind of sort of in a sense faster because you can get straight in there and don't have to think about all the how the game's going to work overall. And then you can also figure out sort of how to push the system a bit and add things and, and change things around. Um, I mean, I say faster, but it, the, the Sherlock Holmes, uh, consultant detective game you've got is, uh, took is probably the longest time I've worked on a game and maybe the longest time I ever work on a game. I'm not sure, but it was, it took a long time. Um, just the sheer amount of writing and testing and planning and, uh, all that kind of stuff. But then when you come up with it completely yourself, um, yeah, I guess there's an excitement there and it's like, well, 
just because of what's possible. It's it's like uh, what's going to work for this audience. Um, what kind of things can I do? What kind of stories can I tell? And I, I guess I've discovered as I've gone along that um, you will often, it sometimes initially feels relatively straightforward um, to come up with a system for telling a story in some way. What you'll often find is that you relatively quickly get to a point where you're suddenly like, oh, well, I want the story to to do this, to have these options. And you realize there's no way for the game system you come up with to give those options. Um, and so then you have to think about it again and you get a challenge of like a sort of solving the puzzle of, well, okay, how can I put those options in there? Um, and you kind of want to try and avoid overloading the player with too many um, rules to think of and, and this kind of stuff, because especially if it's a story game primarily, they often want to really be engaged in the story and focus on the story. You don't want them thinking too much about numbers and and all these rules they have to remember and stuff like that so you've got to get this balance right you've got to sort of use the game system to tell the story and design it to tell the story and the kind of story you want to tell for the audience you want to tell so that's the challenge and it's it's a interesting one (laughs) sounds like a puzzle to work out on your own there yeah yeah definitely dave you've got so much experience i have to ask you how do you play i mean when you have when you've got some free time, do you grab your golf clubs? Do you pick a deck of cards, play poker? Do you turn on the Xbox? Do you go out and play football? What do you? How do, how do you? Can you still play with everything you know about about all this? Um, yeah, um, I think I think in general I'm often quite a playful person. I kind of look for opportunities to play um, a lot of the time when other people don't, and uh, I think I'm sometimes. Um, playful in just the way I interact with people in certain situations, but I, I, um, I, yeah, I play a lot of board games, um, and I'm I'm fascinated by board games. Both, well, I, I guess I'm fascinated by the way they sort of create worlds and can create how you you can sort of model almost a kind of a reality, a different reality with just sort of cardboard um, a lot of the time uh, is something I just find quite fascinating as a principle um, and so yeah I love for playing new games and seeing how they work um, a whole load of different type of games a lot of games that are not anything like the games I design I'm also interested in playing games like the ones I design like narrative games and seeing how they how they do things um, so yeah I do still very much play games i play video games sometimes although not as much as board games i very much like the social aspect of board games that's a big thing for me i think um that interaction and ideally in a in a covid free world the sort of the face-to-face uh interactions you get from from board games i find um great and very kind of um invigorating for me to experience so i think social play is a big thing for me mm. Yeah, you know, as uh, we've been spending more time together as a family here during the pandemic, we've turned to board games, and uh, we have a series of games in the uh, the Ticket to Ride uh, oh, yeah. series of games. We find that a lot of fun. Mm, yeah, yeah, they're good. So. Now, uh, Dave, just in, in closing, um, help us think through your observations as a trained psychologist when you look at the canon, the 60 stories that Conan Doyle wrote. Um Mm-hmm. Which of these stories tend to lend themselves to a game-like mentality? 
Hmm. In other words, um, can you can you think through somewhere? Um, we're, we're following along with Holmes or it, it seems like we, we have some, um, you know, more clues at our hand and, and, and are able to take charge of it more than others. Um, I think that, I think there are definitely a range where, where uh, like, yeah, there are, there are definitely some that are more open to us sort of solving it ourselves um, versus uh, not being able to. There's definitely that range in there. Um, I'm trying to think of particular examples um, at the moment. Um, How do I, I think there are some that have particularly good... I don't know. I guess there are some that have particularly nice... Um, there are things, There's one, one that I've always uh, liked, and I don't know if it gets that much general appreciation, is The Adventure of the Sussex Vampire. I think the I think the solution is quite neat for what the for how for how strange the original problem looks. The solution is pretty neat. Um, yeah, and I I guess I'm quite a fan of that kind of thing where you have some bizarre situation and you think what can this be about, and then you get a solution and it's actually like oh it was actually something relatively simple in a way, um, but it just looked really odd because of the perspective you're looking at it from. Yeah. Um, so I think I think that's really cool, and I think there are I can't think of any others offhand, but there are other stories, but that do that where you something seems inexplicable, and it's because of the perspective you're looking at it from. Yeah. And I've tried to get that in a lot of the cases in the in the game as well as much as I can. And I often I often started almost from the point of saying to my of thinking to myself, what would be a weird situation? What would be a weird thing if somebody said to me, this thing happened, and I don't understand why what would that be? And I came up with some things like that. And then once I'd come up with them and I thought, yeah, that'd be weird. I'd have no idea why that happened. Then I tried to think of a reason and then that became a case. <laughs> so yeah. I, that's the kind of thing I like. And I think the canon has got multiple examples of that. And the adventure of the Southern Vampire is just one of them. Yeah. I mean, it, it strikes me, you know, I mean, if, it was, it was a bit of a difficult question, an impossible question to ask in, in <laughs> some ways uh, to, to answer. Um, you know, Conan Doyle in, in his masterful storytelling, uh, has done a better job just with narrative and, and good storytelling than he has with, uh, trying to solve a puzzle. Um, typically the, the mm -hmm. stories aren't structured in a, you know, solve your own adventure kind of way. Um, and, and you make a great point about the Sussex vampire. I think the Hound of the Baskervilles is another one where we're greeted with the supernatural, something that doesn't seem mm. believable. Mm -hmm. But yeah. in, in your opinion, as Conan Doyle has approached his storytelling, are there any places where uh, the the psychology uh, breaks down, where we, we find ourselves with someone who has an unbelievable reaction to something? Or does Conan Doyle capture the human psychology fairly well? Um, I think, I think he generally captures it fairly well. Um, uh, I mean, it's definitely often pushed a little in terms of, uh, in terms of how Holmes can interpret, um, things and, and, and deduce people's sort of feelings or, or thoughts based on their, their actions. Um, but in terms of kind of, how characters are presented and their reactions and general motivations. I think on the whole, um, my experience of the canon, I, I find it, um, largely believable. And I think, I think at least, um, more believable than a lot of, uh, detective fiction since. I think in a sense, he, um, was it sort of more 
restrained and um, uh, kind of managed to keep a bit more of a handle on on realism than than some uh, detective stuff that has proliferated since, uh, like some modern detective things and stuff, which um, I, I think sort of perhaps it, perhaps in, a, in an effort to try and find new stuff, um, you get you know some things just pushing people psychology and motivations and uh, for crimes to to quite an extreme to, because I, I guess it's such a crowded genre now that people just you know they want to try and try and do new things and it gets difficult it's fascinating it's just you know it's just it's a whole other world and it's wonderful but you know the other thing is it's an interesting set of questions when you talk about conan doyle and the narrative structure because and you mentioned this dave earlier you said you know this is just an enormous amount of writings there are 10 cases here when you when you sit down to author again. Conan Doyle used to complain that, plot, that coming up with the plots was always the, the toughest part. But when you sit down to author something like this, since you really are writing a, a collection of stories, do you mm-hmm. start with, what do you start with? Do you start with the strange events? Do you start with the end? Do you, how, do, how does it compare to writing, you know, just producing a book or producing a short story? Oh, than oh I think it's very similar in terms of, yeah, I think um, as I mentioned, sometimes I'll start with the strange, with the strange event. I'll think, well, that's strange. Can I think of a, a good explanation for that that feels satisfying but unexpected? And if I then eventually can, I'll be like, okay, that, that can work. I'll take that as the basis. Sometimes it's more the end. Sometimes I will realize something. Um, I, it will just occur to me while I'm doing something else in the day. Um, I'll notice something and think, oh, it could be interesting to have a case based around that. Someone, you know, I'll realize that you can work out something based on the way something is happening in a certain room or the way somebody moves or I don't know, but there are certain things you might notice in your day-to-day life and be like, Oh, that could be the good basis for a a mystery in some way. Um, And so from there, it's then expanding that out into a story and um, which I guess is pretty similar to writing a sort of collection just of standard stories. And then I guess where it gets different is the fact that you then have to think, um, yeah, how can, how will players see this? Is it possible to actually work this out without having, you know, read everything without no, without getting to the solution? What, what are the pieces that players can use to put this together? And the, and, and it has to, you, you realize quite quickly on, quick early on trying to do this kind of thing that players can be very unforgiving of like plot holes or anything. So you just cannot have plot holes. Uh, you really have to avoid them. And that's where playtesting comes in when you give it to players and watch them play. And sometimes they'll find a plot hole and then I'm like, okay, right. Now I have to rewrite and address that plot hole and cover that up because, because players will be frustrated because they've been told here's something you can solve. And if they find out plot hole, which means they can't solve it, then they feel cheated. So that there's that, something very strict about that in terms of how to put it together. And then there's also the fact that because you want players to have freedom, you have to not just have the story that you would have um, if you're writing a short story. You have to have all the other bits around that. So um, in a standard Sherlock Holmes story, you won't necessarily, you know, ever meet the client's wife or or go to the place where he works. But in this game, the players have to have the options to do those things, which means I have to now write a thing about what his wife says and what you find at his work. And all this extra stuff that might not actually be directly related to the case, but I've still got to write it. 
And so, yeah, there's, that, there's this whole extra element to it. Well, thank you for creating, you know, such a magnificent addition to the world of Sherlock Holmes, such a great immersive experience in Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective, the Baker Street Irregulars. Thank you. Well, I have to tell you, it's um, it's not often that games, especially Sherlockian games, come into uh, my purview. You know, our family has been playing a lot of games uh, during the pandemic, as I mentioned uh, during the interview. And, um, you know, just just last weekend, we had, we had a, a wonderful time, um, you know, trying some new games. And and you know, I mean, it's it's easy to go back to the tried and the true and the things we've grown up with and whatnot, but... Uh, you know, you, you walk into any specialty game store and look on the shelves, and it's absolutely remarkable uh, the different uh, styles and types of games that they have uh, today that really seem to be only limited by the imaginations of the creators. Yeah, that's a and that's a terrific observation. And I'm I'm such a big fan of games. In fact, when you know when my kids were younger, we had an enormous collection of games that we played. But what I found interesting, you know, and you, you're, you're absolutely right when you talk about the imagination of the creator, but what I found really interesting in what Dave had to say, uh, among everything Dave had to say, was was the psychological aspect of it, because I never realized before the the the, rev- the relevance and alignment with popular culture. So in his conversation, you can relate games and particularly this particular game, um, to things like uh, escape rooms, which he mentioned, to interactive theater, which he mentioned, to uh, cosplay, you know, to people who, uh, you know, and the rise of that. And um, I never realized before that it's all of a piece, that participatory engagement interaction mm. with, uh, with games. And that's one of the things that makes this particular game, I think, so successful. Yeah. And at the same time, I don't think it's necessarily locked in, uh, into these current trends. I mean, these, these current trends are certainly uh, something that are representative of, um, everything that's happening around us now. But at the same time, they're very much universal. You know, uh, th- this notion of an escape room, even though the construct is, uh, of a modern era, the, the concept itself is uh, is rooted in, uh, you know, well, look, go all the way back to uh, Dickens or Poe, uh, the kind of locked room mystery kind of thing that we've enjoyed for uh, centuries now. Uh, so I think, you know, when you when you combine that kind of current event or the the, the current trends with something like uh, Sherlock Holmes, uh, the consulting detective. Um, you know, again, it's a, it's a timeless classic. I think something that, uh, will, will certainly last well beyond what we're seeing, uh, in these few years around us. Yes. Yes. As long as we last <laughs> for some time after everything we're seeing in these years around us. We can only hope. Well, you've heard those strains of music before. If you haven't uh, and you're a first-time listener, welcome. This is the time in our show when we talk about or when we cover uh, canonical couplets. 
That's right. It's every Sherlockian's favorite quiz game, where we give you two lines of poetry, and we expect you to come up with the title of the story that is represented by those two lines. Now, if you remember, the last time we were here, we gave you this clue. Four pounds a week when business was slow was more than worth the Fleet Street show. Bert, do you know the solution to this episode's canonical couplet? I got this one. This one I got. It's the story of the mysterious legend about the exploding sporting equipment. This is the sound of the basketballs. (laughs) Boing, boing. Yes. Bert, I think you should concentrate on your dribbling. (laughs) <laughs> you know that's what my dry cleaner says <laughs> well as usual Bert you were so close yet oh so far away our friend Eric Deckers had a suggestion for you he said I've, I've, I'm sure I've got it this time this was the story about a man named Jabez Garcia who was hired to copy lyrics from the Terrapin Station album it's, it's the Grateful Deadheaded League no, no, that's not right. It's it's the Redheaded League. It's the Redheaded League. And we we do appreciate your help with this every week, Eric, but uh we're going to still go to the wheel uh the the the, the great prize wheel and we're we're going to haul it out here and uh give it a big spin and we'll watch it go around and it's slowing down and it looks like it lands on number 12 number 12 and that corresponds to Richard Non Richard from California, congratulations. We will be reaching out to you and sending you a prize of some sort. You'll have to stay tuned for what it is. But in this case, we have a prize available for this episode's canonical couplet. The prize, in this case, is a copy of David Neal's Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective, The Baker Street Irregulars. And here's your clue. Watson, down for breakfast, had no idea at all. He'd soon be off to Paddington to answer Sherlock's call. If you know the answer to this episode's canonical couplet, put it in an email addressed to comment at IHearOfSherlock.com with canonical couplet in the subject line. If you are among all of the correct answers that we receive and we choose your name at random, you will win a copy of the game. Good luck. Oh boy, that's that's going to be a lot of fun receiving those answers. I have no doubt. It's a tricky one too. Interesting. Yes. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, what do you have planned between now and the middle of the month, Bert? Well, wrapping and unwrapping Christmas presents. Um, <laughs> the same ones. You're going to wrap them and unwrap them, and yeah, it's part of my skill building. Thing. Lather, rinse, and repeat. Yeah. Rather rinse and repeat. Well, um, you know, I mean, we need to we need to keep ourselves occupied in these trying times. Certainly, one it's way true. To do it. It's true. Well, I have a lot of writing assignments and things, but it's such a bizarre year. You know, this this um, you know everything that's been going on in 2020 has really upset so many cycles and so many rhythms. What do you have going on between? Have you done all your Christmas shopping? I've done. I've done. 
probably about, I would say, half of my Christmas show. Yeah, I've done most of mine. Um, obviously, it's an online affair this year, as so many things are, uh, which, you know, makes it a little easier. Um, we're, uh, I think, talking about uh, travel or non-travel plans for the holidays, given uh, what the situation is. I think the, the biggest thing left is to kind of figure out what it is that we'll be eating uh, around the holidays and prepare our menus for uh, that uh, that time period. So we'll have fun don't with that. You, don't you have a sort of a standard menu that you – that you generally refer or is it really different every year? No, we, we vary it every year. You know, I mean, for, for the big Christmas dinner, we've done everything from crown roast of pork to prime rib to ham to turkey. I can't seem to convince my family to try goose though, unfortunately. <laughs> we did do a goose at least once and maybe twice. It wasn't, it wasn't the friends of Irene Adler experience. Mm. And that's a, that's an annual event that we're sadly not, will sadly not be held this year in Massachusetts in the third Friday of December, which I guess is when it was usually held, but, um, or the second, I don't quite remember, third, but third the, Friday, the, yeah. But the, the dinner there was always goose and it was always great, but uh, I failed, we failed to, uh, duplicate that so you're not missing anything <laughs> no no it's not quite the same at home anyway well uh whatever it is you're preparing uh happy uh first half of the month to you we will be back here on december 15th with episode 206 and that means we'll only have one episode left for 2020 uh, we're lining up our guests. There's plenty to be had for 2021. Uh, but we do appreciate you staying tuned here with everything that we offer at I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. Interviews twice a month with Sherlockian luminaries. In the meantime, I am the brightly shining, I don't know if I'd say luminary, uh, Scott Monty. And I am the dull, patinaed Bert Wolden. <laughs> and together we combine our, our, our wattage to say, the, the games, games afoot! <laughs> the, the games afoot! You know, I'm afraid that in the pleasure of this conversation, I'm neglecting business of importance which awaits me elsewhere. Thank you for listening. Please be sure to join us again for the next episode of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast dedicated to Sherlock Holmes. Goodbye, and good luck, and believe me to be, my dear fellow, very sincerely yours, Sherlock Holmes. 